want to start this morning, uh, we're in the 13th part of 14th part series on Philippians. And uh, I tell you, I've really enjoyed, I've always loved the book of Philippians. But um, this morning, what I want to do is, is basically kind of go back and, and uh, you see the artwork here as it relates to the series. Christian, when he finished the artwork on the series we would be doing, he came in and he said, how does this look? And I saw old friend on the artwork. Our first car was a 1973 Volkswagen Beetle, okay? How many of you remember your first car? Remember your first car? This was our beautiful car here, and uh, actually that's a representation of our car. We never took a picture of the car for some reason without us standing in front of it. I don't know why you wouldn't want to stand in front of a Beetle and take a picture, but anyway. But we, uh, we had this uh, beautiful car. So our first car is a couple. Um, it was a semi-automatic. Now, I don't know if you know what that means. It just means you could change the gears, but you had no clutch. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Well, it kind of was. Um, it was a semi-automatic. And, and what was interesting about the car is, and I might have told some of you this. I might have used an illustration before, but uh, you could pop the gear and make the thing bounce. I mean, you could. The whole back end. I mean, it's a really cool car. Um, 45, 45 horsepower. 45 horsepower. Can you believe that? Cars today are, what, 300, 445. We had 45. It could go to 0 to 60 in 23 seconds flat. Our car took 12 minutes. But anyway... It had, and I went back and looked at how they advertised it. It had a flow-through ventilation system. That means no air conditioner. It means that the outside air is coming inside the car. Okay, that's all that means. It had a, heat, a heater, check this out, that was blown in from the engine. The heat of the engine would be blown into the car to create the heat. Uh, the engine, many of you know, was in the back, and the storage was in the front. At the time we got this car, 1982, our car was worth $500, $500. Now, our car had a few extras involved in it. It would cut off every time you would stop. Anybody had a car like that? Cut off any time you stopped. So when you got stopped at a stoplight, you had to be very strategic about what you're getting ready to do. Okay, because again, it was a semi-automatic, so there was no clutch, so you had to pop and go. That's basically how you did it. So you cranked and went. Okay, now we had a passenger seat that could recline, but not just recline, recline. I'm talking about recline. I mean, where the whole thing lifts up and goes <laughs> to the back seat. I mean, this car was impressive. It had so many different features as it related to it. Matter of fact, uh, my manager at Harris Teeter, he said, hey, would you mind doing me a favor? My daughter needs to go from one place to the other. Would you go pick her up and take her down? And, and I thought, yeah, that's no problem, because I was eager to serve. And I go, oh, and then I remember the car I had. And so I go and I pick her up. She was one of these prim and proper girls. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? Everything had to be in place and everything. And so, so we go and I pick her up and, and, and we go and, and, and we stop at the stop sign. And, and we're, she's in the car. She's all prim and proper. She's already looked at my car with disgust, which I kind of got what she was up to there. But, but anyway, and so all of a sudden the car cuts off. And so I'm sitting there waiting, and she's like, because you really got to think through the process to make it go. 
And so I, I, I cut it on, popped it, and I popped off and started going, and the whole seat just flipped her back into the back seat. I mean, this car was amazing, you know? And, and so without missing a beat, I'm up there changing gears. I take her seat, and I flop it back down. I can't. <laughs> Anybody have a car or something like that? There's one more feature. There was a hole in the floorboard of the back in the back past, uh, behind the, the driver's seat. So when Jonathan was, you know, when you had car seats, you, we really had to tighten him into the car seat. Because if he slid out, he would be on the highway in that car. I mean, it, 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 I mean this car had everything. But, but you know something? The thing that we took from it was the fact that it was ours. It was our car. Didn't bring a lot of peace to us at times. I mean, anytime you got stopped, it was atrocious to try to figure out with all the anxiety, am I going to make it work this time? You know, that type of thing. But the thing is, this was the first car that our family did joy rides in. It was the first car that got us from place to place. Now, you may say, how does this relate to what we're talking about today? And I'm just going to tell you, it was difficult to find peace in this car. You were constantly worried about something that would be uh, amiss. Someone falling on the highway. <laughs> I mean, there was all these things that would run through your mind. And so today what I want to do is kind of use that story. We took the artwork. We showed you where we are. But I want you to think about the series introduction, a series introduction we introduced, what, 14 weeks ago. Joy is the unshakable assurance that God is in control of all the details of your life. The confidence that ultimately we can trust God in everything that comes into our lives and the determined purpose to praise Him in all things. If you will, turn to Philippians chapter 4. And today we're looking at choose joy, peace in an unimaginable place. And that would have been my VW car. But anyway, one of the greatest things we can have or experience is peace. I mean, let's think about it. Do you sleep better with peace? Yeah, you do. Do, do you, you have a better uh, attitude when there's peace in your heart? Oh, yeah. All these things. There's so many benefits. But without it, we do. We have the sleepless nights. We have fear. We have anxiety about the future. Will I keep my job? Will I get a job? Uh, will I have enough money uh, in retirement? All these things. We, we have anxiety about finances, children, health care. And for some, even death. And what happens after that? But in the midst of all these things, it is possible to have peace. Now think about that. Peace in unimaginable places and situations. So what's the definition of peace? It's a state of mutual harmony between people or groups. But, but the way we're going to look at it today is also a state of tranquility and contentment. To have peace, you've got to have contentment. And the world we live in, the driving force is trying to bring out of us is discontentment. How many of you notice that? It's trying to get us to a point where we're never content with what we have, what we do, all these different things. So, so the world seems to be working against our peace. But look at the introduction. In a spiritual context, peace is not the absence of problems, but the presence of Christ. What do you think about that? It's not the absence of my problems, it's the presence of Christ in your life. True peace is not affected by circumstances. It is the opposite of conflict, ungratefulness, and worry. Matter of fact, it is the purest path to joy. 
the purest path to joy. So first of all, how do we discover peace in the midst of conflict? How do we find it? As we make our way through chapter 4, there appears to be two ladies in the church. They're members of the church there at Philippi who were in conflict with one another. Now, we don't really know what the conflict really is. The, the Bible, Paul doesn't address what it's all about. But it appears that their conflict is causing problems throughout the church. And it tells me that this type of conflict is entrenched. It's not only entrenched, there are people who possibly are choosing sides. You ever been a part of something like that? Whether it's in the workplace or in a church or wherever. So everyone's declaring their sides. And Paul seems to be concerned about what's coming of this conflict. So he tells the church to handle the matter. And he tells them how to. And the first thing he says is be same-minded. You need to be in harmony. And so look at verse 2. I implore Judea and Syntyche to be of the same mind, where? In the Lord. Not, not, not to be in the same mind in anything else other than in the Lord. You, you come to a place of harmony. When you bring things before the Lord, there will be this pursuit of harmony. And it may look like what we talked about recently, an ability to agree to disagree on something. And, and so basically he's saying, look at it. Now, I, I want you to put yourself in these ladies' places. They were causing conflict in the church, so much so they got to be called out. We're reading about them 2,000 years later that they got called out. How many of you would like to be known in the Bible as the ones who got called out? These ladies did. And so they're literally being called out. I, I kind of want to meet these ladies. The Bible says they were saved. I, or get to heaven saved. So, so what was that conflict all about? You know, and, well, you know, that kind of thing. But, but no church, listen to this, can experience peace when its people are in conflict. Paul was telling these ladies to see the bigger picture. The church is not about you, your agendas, your differences, your preferences. It is about coming together and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and discipling them in the word. And he says, basically, the only way you get there is to be same-minded and to work in harmony. Now, let me tell you what I think about this conflict. And the reason I think it, about this is because Paul is addressing it. So it's something that deeply affects the church. Let me tell you what happens in a lot of churches. A lot of people in churches will make their preferences principle. You see what I'm saying? What they see as preference is really preference. They've made it a matter of principle. Sometimes it can be an issue of worship. It can be, no, God's, God's music is the old hymns. God's music is southern gospel music. That's the only kind he listens to on the radio. No, listen. The Bible talks about all nations worshiping God. It talks about all peoples worshiping God. It's talking about gen different generations worshiping God. And so it's going to sound a little different as you make your way through. At some point, the hymns were new music. You know that, right? Everything's been new. You, you go back to the, what's the original music of God? It's the Psalms. And many of the Psalms have made their way into music. And they should because they were written as Psalms. And so the point I'm trying to make here is sometimes if we're not careful, we may even be well-meaning. We can make 
preference principle. And that can cause a lot of problems in the church. And Paul, that, that very well could be the same thing we're dealing with here. And then Paul says this, be helpful. He's basically saying mediate. In chapter 3, Paul is asking for someone, or chapter 4, he's asking for someone to mediate this conflict. It's basically help these women. <laughs> and so verse 3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. Paul said these ladies are, are, have really helped build the kingdom of God. And they basically, maybe they had strong personalities. They've come to a head. There's a problem. But Paul's basically saying at one time they weren't a stumbling block. They were helping advance the kingdom of God in a healthy way. We, we see this. So he's saying, help these women. Paul tells us how that could be and how it could look in Ephesians chapter 4. Look here on the screen. He says, speaking the truth how? In love. May grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. Now who's not the head? The ladies. They're not the head. The people who make up the church are not the head. It's Christ from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by every joint supplies. He's talking a body that's effectively working. That's what he says next. According to the effective working by which every part does its share. He's talking about a healthy environment as it relates to the church. But guess what? Can cancer come into a healthy body? Absolutely. Can, can a cancer come into a church and destroy the intent of what God made it to be? And then he says this, causes growth of the whole body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, sometimes when you hear a message like this and you're sitting here today and there's a good chance some of you are here for the first time, you, you, here's what you're thinking. Man, this church must be going through it right now. Preacher's leveling them right now. He's talking to them. That's not what's going on here, y'all. We've been the blessing of people who have identified what their preferences are versus principle. We're talking to people here at this church who have made those type of sacrifices to move forward, to try to be as healthy as it can be. It's not going to be perfect. We're made up of people, right? But we try to acknowledge that Christ is the head. We try to follow the heart of God through the vision that he's given us some 20-some years ago. And God continues to work. But here in this church, and by the way, the church at Philippi is a healthy church. It's really healthy. Paul's just trying to make sure it doesn't change. He's saying, help these women. we got to fix this. Church, pay attention to this. Next, when conflict arises, be reminded whose you are. Now, here's what's interesting about these ladies. I've already kind of given it away. They were followers of Jesus. Now, how do you know that? Look at the second part of verse four, or 3. Whose names are written in the book of life. The Lamb's book of life, same one. It means they have salvation. Now, how many of you find that kind of amazing that there can be a major disruption, entrenched conflict, and it comes from those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, who were saved. And heaven declares that they're saved. So what does that say about us? That even us, maybe even in our best intentions, can be a stumbling block to the work of the church. 
And we've got to make sure we're not that. So here's what he's basically saying. And to me, you go back to Philippians chapter 2. Go back there. Look at verse 2. Paul says this, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't, don't make what's happening in the church center around you. Don't do that. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself or herself. That their opinion may be noteworthy. That their opinion you might want to consider. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Now, I want to go back and I want us to talk about this idea of those who make up the church. Basically, Paul has already said, these ladies, there's conflict. It appears to be entrenched. People possibly have chosen sides. It's a detriment to the church. There's a problem going on. Now, where could the problem come from in a lot of churches? Well, I want you to, this is not on your outline, but I want to, I want to give you this. There are four types of Christians. There are four types. And by the way, not everyone who professes or confesses to be Christian is actually a Christian. The, even Jesus said that, okay? But, but I want you to think about it. There's four kinds. There are cultural Christians, okay? And they're not actually followers of Jesus. They, 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 maybe they're a family who said, you know, I want my children to be raised under a Christian influence. And so we're going to go to church, and we're going to put them in there. I want them to have some of the foundation I had in my own life, and I want that to be there. Or, you know something, maybe, maybe we should be in church. And it's more of about the culture of what you're trying to bring to your life. Then there are carnal Christians. How many of you have ever heard of these? All of you have probably been there at one time or the other. It's someone who knows the Lord, but they're acting in the flesh. These two ladies appear to be doing that. They're, they're acting in the flesh. They're, they're basically saying, here, here, here I am. This is important. We need to do this. And so you have that, and they're led. Think about it. They're being led by their nature. Then there are the religious Christians who focus on their self-righteousness. Rather than being led by the Spirit, their whole idea of Christianity is making sure the good outweighs the bad that I'm good enough. And a lot of their pride is tied up in the fact that they're being good. And so it's all about rule following. And there's really no idea of the Holy Spirit working in their life. It's just trying to live the do's and don'ts. And then fourthly, there are what we call the spiritual Christians. And they are led and governed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading them through the challenges and charges and comfort of God's Word. All those things are happening. And so it's the Spirit of God living in them, where they're sensing that God's doing a work in them through their gifts, through uh, the fruit of the Spirit, whatever it may be. They just see there's awareness that's there. And they're attempting to live by the Word of God by which the Holy Spirit leads and guides them. Now let me just say this. Three of these can be a detriment to the church because one can produce religious pride. Pride has no place in the church, right? Okay, pride has no place. Second of all, carnal Christians, let me just say this. 
you stand to do as much or more damage than someone who's completely lost. Because you wear a name that's greater than you are. You represent someone who's way greater than you are. And you're out there acting in the flesh. By nature of the lost, cause a lot of damage. And then, and this may be you here today, and I don't mean any offense by it, but you need to take note of this. You may be what is a cultural Christian. And this is where you think you're supposed to be at 11 o'clock or 9.30 on a Sunday morning. And you think, well, I want my children to have a certain thing. No, what about you? How is God leading you? What, what does salvation mean to you? What, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God and God working in your life? And you're maturing and you're in the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. Is that happening? All three of these groups can cause a detriment to the church. And if we're not careful... That's where a lot of compromise comes into the church, where people are willing to compromise the Word of God for the sake of where the culture's going. And we've got to be careful with all that because the culture is pressing in on the church. And we've got to keep the doctrine of God's Word pure. The theology of God's Word is pure as we know. We must hold to that Word. And so we see we need to be reminded Whose are we? It's not about us. It's not about the cultural influence. It's about what he's doing with us. Next, when great conflict arises, be grateful. And that talks about focus. I believe verses 4 and 5 are still references to the conflict between these women. And what does he say in verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Can you imagine going up to Judea and say, hey, Judea, I... I don't you just praise Jesus for everything he's doing here? And don't you just praise, I guarantee you, I've, I've met these people. <laughs> they don't, that ain't the frame of mind at that point. It's about winning the argument. It's about making sure you get what you want, what you desire. That ain't what's going on. So how do we fix this? We, be great, we, we become grateful. Quit focusing on what you disagree with. Be grateful and rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in gratitude. Listen, give the believer spiritual sp stability. And the fact that you would bring that into the house of God, that spiritual stability, makes us all more stable. Have you ever met people that everywhere they go, there's drama, there's chaos, there's conflict? Don't be looking around. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, this is his, he's saying, don't come at it from that position. That's not, that's not worthy of the kingdom of God. There is true, this is true for the individual. It's true for a family. But think about it. Being grateful is all about focus. That's really what he's talking about here. Parents, we should lead the focus of our families. But here's what I'm watching. I'm watching the focus of the family be led by the child in this day and age. The focus of the family is to be led by the parents. And, and we must pay attention to that. Church family. We, we need to realize that God has placed certain people here. Leaders should lead the focus of the church. You say, who are leaders? There are people who have influence. There are people who, who believe in following the heart of God, realizing that Jesus is the head. He's the one leading. Our only hope is we get in touch with what he's up to. And all that comes from our focus and one of gratitude. I don't know about you, but listen, our church 
I mean, there, there's something going on here. I'm watching believers being discipled. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing some of you and just seeing what God's doing in your life. And y'all, that's beautiful. And, and the thing is, we need to be so grateful, so grateful that God would choose us as a body to have that responsibility to, to do what he's called us to do. And he's given us so many to do that with. Think about the children. Y'all, we had over 200 children here last week. 200 children. Think about that responsibility. And, and, and by the way, parents, it's your main responsibility. We're here to come alongside of you with your children and help you. But we must also help model that example too because I'll be honest with you, even someone who was called to be a, a pastor of a church at some point, there was a time when I was a father, I didn't know what that looked like. We've got to pay attention. And our focus must be grateful. When conflict arises, be reasonable. And it's really the idea of being agreeable. Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all. So basically, the word gentleness, and to be honest with you, if you read this word anywhere, you'll find that the Greek, going from the Greek to the English is a big challenge with this word. Okay? Because it can mean, a very, it can mean various things. It can mean forbearance. It can mean goodwill. It can mean friendly disposition. Isn't that what we typically think of gentleness? And it can also, in this context, mean reasonableness, being reasonable, okay? Paul seems to be instructing these ladies to be reasonable, meaning if you have to agree to disagree, please do. Quit causing conflict in the family. Paul's appeal could also be to one of the ladies that she may, be, that she may have to concede for the good of the church family, and sometimes that's the healthiest path. So what are we to bring to the table when there is conflict? Based on what we just read, we need to have a focus of gratitude. And we also need to be gentle. We need to be gentle in, in all our de dealings. Next, when conflict arises, be reminded who is coming. Did you know one day Jesus is coming back? The one who's head of this place is coming back. That, that, could, that should be one of the focuses of our mind. He's coming back. He left strict commands of what he expected, how we are to get, conduct ourselves as individuals and a church, and the thing that Paul's reminding them of, he's coming back. <laughs> he's coming back. So what's he going to do? Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to set all things straight. He's going to fix the things that, need to be, that are broken. He's going to put everything right. He's going to, uh, I think there will be some type of judgment that will be placed on what we did with the gifts he gave us, not only as individuals, but as a church. So this verse can be also seen in two ways. It can look at the present by saying he's watching. By the way, is he watching what we're doing? Absolutely. He's not only watching. Let me tell you what he's doing right now. This should blow your mind. He's here. The Bible says where we're gathered, he's here. We brought him here. The very one who is here, who is watching, resides in you if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the point is this. There's someone standing in front of you attempting to expound the word of God. But there's the spirit of God in you that's waiting to welcome that into you. And that's where the key of all this is. We need to be reminded of what God is up to. One day he's coming back, but in the present, he's watching. 
He's directing. He's guiding all who are here. So he's here. He's watching. Now, next, discover peace in the midst of worry. Now, how many of you have heard, and I've shared this with you before, how many of you have heard the term worry wart? Now, how many of you at some point in your life could be classified as that? Okay, any takers on still there today? Okay, all right, bless your heart. Okay, now some people go from worrying about one thing to the next. Have you ever noticed that becomes a pattern? It's almost like there's a pattern, there's a program in your head. And most worriers, yeah, there's some who just worry about everything. But really, the focus of many warriors is the fact, not warriors, worriers, is the fact that they focus on this. This is what obsesses on them. This is what keeps them up at night. And then once either nothing comes of it or, or whatever happens, they move to the next thing. Any takers on that one? Okay. Now, someone has said this. You've heard this before. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it never gets you anywhere, right? Now, how many of you would say that is a perfect definition of worry? The same ones who said they worry. Bless your heart. Okay. But the thing we got to realize, what is worry really? What is it? What's worry? What is it really? It's lack of faith. It's distrust. Some of you are like, well, I don't mean worry. I mean, I'm just cautious. It's distrust. It's <laughs> and the thing that we need to realize is this. There's not a lot that comes from it. Because worry is, seems to always be associated with the outcome of fear. There's a fear to, associated with worry. And I've shared this with you before. But even psychologists say this. Psychologists say that we've found that all our worries, 40% never happen. Now those who worry, how many of you must admit that's true? 40% never happened. 30% actually concern the past in which there's nothing you can do about it. It's there. It's already there. 12% are about health. And, and for some of you, you say, well, that's a legitimate thing. Yeah, I, I get that. It's our health. 10% are about petty issues, leaving only 8% of our worries that seem to be legit. So 92% of worrying is grounded in deception. How many of you say, no, I've got a better record than that? My stuff happens. <laughs> but, I mean, it's amazing. Then, then here's what we need. Then when you think about the 8% of worrying, which is or becomes legit, even that's where? In the hands of God. In the hands of God. So do we need to worry? Is it something? And, and by the way, nothing catches him off guard. So what are, what are we getting ready to learn and what Paul's about to say? Which leads us to the fact that we are to be not panicked in the midst of worry and fear. Now some of you are like, well, that's easier said than done. But where is that in the Bible? Right here, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. What does that include? Everything. Nothing. <laughs> now, how many of you are like, that's not even reasonable. That's not. How? Can you really live that way? I think I've met people who live that way. And they sicken me. I'll be honest with you. No, I'm just <laughs> No, I respect that. 
I think I really have. And, and, and I know the people, they have a genuineness about them. They don't, they're not used to putting something out there that's not really there. And, and it's very impressive that they trust God. I, I, and, and here's what we need to understand. Worry reveals the level of, of a maturing faith. When faith is activated, worry ceases. Did you know that? They can't coexist. One is going in one direction while the other's got to go in the other direction. So when faith is excelling, worry is fading. When worry is excelling, faith is fading. How many of you see that? It only makes sense that it would be that way. So another way of saying it is every step I take towards worry, I take a step from faith. We must remember that God desires us to live how? By faith. Over and over again, it's proclaimed in Scripture. It's talked about in the Minor Prophets. It's talked about as we come to the Gospels. Paul is reminding us of those things. In Galatians 2.20, look here on the screen. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I'm not calling the shots, but Christ who lives in me. And the faith which I now live in the flesh, I'm here, I'm limited in certain capacities. I haven't been glorified yet where perfections come, but I'm a work in progress. He says, in the life I live now in the flesh, I live how? By faith. But where's that faith placed? It's not blind faith. It's where? In the Son of God. In the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that beautiful? What? Based on this, do we really have a reason to worry? No. No, we don't. So how do, how do we go from worry to faith? Be prayerful. Prayer grounds faith. Okay? Again, our faith is not in something blind, something... No, it's in Christ Jesus. So the link, the link between Moving away from our worries and our fear is linked through our prayer life. Our faith is enhanced and relies on prayer. It's a must. And look at what he says in verse, the second part of verse 6. But in everything, don't be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The word prayer there is the idea of adoration, devotion, and worship. That, that's primarily how that is supposed to be uh, done. That's the part of the prayer where that takes place. Supplication is the idea of expressing our needs, concerns, and desires. Now, how many of you are good at that one? We're good at that one, aren't we? Oh, God, help me. Oh, Lord. What do we call them? 911 prayers? We're good at that. Did you know even the atheist prays 911 prayers? <laughs> I mean, they just, oh, help me. <laughs> and and, and here's, here's another. Thanksgiving is the idea of expressing our thanks to God. When worry comes to our heart, we need to see God as he truly is, all-powerful, all-knowing. And when we know him as all-powerful and all-knowing, that means we can trust him. Now, let me just say this. Some of us have real things to, to, that we could say to worry about. Some of us do. There's people sitting here today you're dealing with a very tough health issue. And I think probably most all of us in this room would look at your situation and say, I can see why you would worry. I can see your great concern. 
But, but the fact is, God wants to take us to a place that's supernatural. And you know how he does that? By, certain, by inserting peace in the midst of the greatest things that we could ever worry about. You say, is that true? I've seen it. I've seen it on people's deathbeds. I've seen it when they've got the t- most terrible news about their health. I've seen it when they had a wayward child that they know there's nothing they can do unless God gets a hold of that child's heart. I've seen it in so many places you wouldn't believe. And it is amazing how God can do that. But what's he saying? He's saying, let your request be known to God. Take it off yourself. Take that off of you. That heaviness is there. Place it on him. And then there's a stepfather, and then it's, let's see, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so then next, remember the command is not to worry, but pray, and this will lead us to peace. So he says now, be at peace. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, here's what it means, transcends human intellectualism, transcends human analysis, transcends human perspective. When, when you put this in place, When you begin to do what God tells you to do, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice it doesn't say if God removes that or if if God chooses not to move that. Guess what? Sometimes what we make an object of worry, just because we pray about it doesn't mean it goes away. But the peace in an unimaginable place happens When people look into your life and they see the turmoil that they imagine must be in your life because of this going on in your life, and you can stand there and say, no, I have a peace that supersedes uh, anything that you may be thinking. Anything, because it's in God's hands. That is so powerful when you think about it. So the peace of God stands guard over two areas. Look at what he says, that create worry in ourselves. There's two areas, the heart. That's where wrong and destructive feelings come from. And the head, where wrong and destructive thoughts come from. Which leads us to our next point. And I want you to think about this. Discover peace in the midst of proper focus. For some of you, it's not necessarily the worrying. It's your focus. How many of you agree that sometimes your focus is all wrong? Your perspective is all wrong. And and sometimes we that's a healthy place to go. But the determining factor of whether we have peace or whether we worry is what we're focused on. Now, when I'm driving a car or you're driving a car, and all of a sudden, maybe you look, uh, not because they were in the left lane and you're looking at them in a bad way or anything like that, but, but all of a sudden you look, what happens when you look? You go right towards them. Whatever you're focused on is where your direction goes. And we see it even in driving. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs. For as a man or a person thinks, in their heart, so are they. Think about that. There's some of you who don't think a whole lot of yourselves. Now, when it comes to a point of salvation, maybe we don't need to think a lot of ourselves. We need to realize we need the Savior. But some of you have some deep-seated stuff in your life that has been there, and, I mean, it is in, it's, it's taking you to bad places. And your focus has been what either happened to you, the victim, but he's saying, focus, focus. What you're really thinking is really who you are. Another way of saying it, how many of you have ever heard the phrase self-fulfilling prophecy? 
It's the idea that you think of yourself a certain way. And guess what? Your attitude will move in that direction because that's your focus. And he's basically saying, let's change all that. And so here's a good way of looking at this. For as a person thinks in their heart, so will be their reality. For as a person thinks in their heart, so will be the direction of their life. For as a person thinks in their heart, so will be their perspective or focus on life. And that seems to be what he's saying here. So Paul in verse 8 is telling us that our focus needs to be in three areas. First of all, there's an inward focus. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just. So basically, how do we shape our focus? How do we shape our perspective? Number one, focus on what is true, what is true. Literally, the idea of what is real comes more from the idea of what's genuine. You know what a lot of people say about our church? I love the fact that most people, now you may think this is false humility. It's really not because I don't like a lot of pressure on myself, to be honest with you. You know most people don't even know who the pastor is of this church. They don't. And, and, and I, I find comfort in that. It takes pressure off me. You, you know what I mean? But... I can blame someone else if it's a mess, right? But anyway, no. No, but look, here's what I want you to think. The thing that a lot of people think about this church is that church, and I've heard them say it, y'all come from a very genuine place. Y'all don't pretend to be something you're not. Y'all don't get up there and high horse everyone. You don't get up there and talk down to people. You engage with the hearts of people. And man, I'm like, I'll take that any day because this is what's hitting at us right here. We're looking at a world that doesn't trust anything. You know that, right? We don't trust. Everything we look at, we either don't trust it or we're highly suspicious, correct? The world's looking for something that's real, that's true, that's genuine. I think that's what we should be reflecting. Secondly, Whatever things are noble, be respectful. It, it means honest, honest appraisal. It means respectful. It means our thoughts should be honorable. Number two, just. It means to be righteous, just by both divine and human standards. It literally suggests fair dealings with others. And then he says there's an outward focus. Verse 8, look at what he says in the second part. Whatever things are pure or lovely or good report. Pure, it literally means to be pure, undefiled. It means to be stainless. When the mind, however, and we know this, is allowed to drift, it most often drifts to what is impure that defiles. We, we've got to be intentional with our minds. We've got to point them in that direction of purity and undefilement. Second, lovely. It means being pleasing. It means harmony, admirable, not strife. It's one that's devoid of drama. Drama. Good report. Be positive. Meaning someone who builds up, someone who's appealing. In Scripture, as it relates to this principle, not only should we be positive, but we are to build up others. Others. And not entertain conversations that tear people down. And then, a motivating focus. The things we focus on tend to be the things that motivate us. If we focus on the previous words, we will be motivated then to do what? Look at the last part of verse 8. 
If there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Virtue means be excellent. Speaks of moral excellence. Motivated to do the right thing. Praiseworthy means be encouraging. Motivated to build up others. To build up those things that God desires to be built up. And then meditate on these things. By the way, that's a command. A command. The present tense here means continually do these things. Keep these things at the forefront of your mind. These thoughts lead to inner peace. I want to ask you a question. How many of you are sick of drama in your life? I want to say something very convicting. Dig deep and find out where the source of drama is coming from. Y'all, I've had conversations with people that they have no idea that they're their own source of drama. They never saw it. They, they just see it. I'm right. I'm doing it this way. Blah, blah, blah. And by the way, the prophet, the spiritual gift of prophets, black and white, they're going to call it the way it is. I'll be honest with you. And, and God says that's, that, that needs to be in the church. We got to have that. We got to have those who, who hold those standards up and who will do that. But, but sometimes we don't know how to implement the gift. And we come across harsh and sometimes ugly when the Bible says to speak things how? In love. You still confront. You still come at it. But you, it's not like you go over there, throw a grenade and turn around and walk off. No. We got to think about these things. And then here's the application. Paul closes this part of his letter with practical application and then the results if we follow this application. Look at verse 9. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. So what's the first thing we find? We see a careful exhortation. A careful exhortation. Learning. He's literally saying this learning must become personal experience. And that's the problem with a lot of us today. We got so much information coming at us, even the good truths of God's word. And, and, and we got so many things coming that it never becomes our personal experience. When God says, walk in the word, walk in truth, your personal experience, you're experiencing what the word means. He gives them that careful exhortation. Secondly, he gives this concrete example. Paul says, if you need a mentor in this and you don't, look at me. Here he is again. Eight times in scripture he says it. And this is another one of those times. Second time in Philippians. And then he says, with a culminating effect, what does he say? And the God of peace will be with you. True peace is only found in Jesus Christ. And my question to you this morning is this. Do you know him? Do you know him? We're not going to have an invitation this morning. I, I just want to leave you with these thoughts. And right now, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's make what we've heard here today. I mean, think about it. Could we be any more practical than we were here today? And this wasn't me up here giving my examples. No, no, this, this is the word of God that says, if you want the best outcome, if you want to, if you want to experience peace in unimaginable places, Here's how you do it. Why would we not follow this? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, we are a needy people. Lord, sometimes if we just kind of let our minds drift, it seems to never drift in the right place. 
that flesh nature kind of takes over. But Father, if there's anything that I've learned here through the passage today, it's the fact I've got to be intentional. I, I have to focus my mind. I have to focus my heart on those things that lead to the greatest things imaginable. And that's to have peace in the midst of all circumstances that this world throws at us. Father, I pray for the soul that's here this morning. And maybe they've never seen peace through Jesus Christ. And they've, they've never experienced anything like that. I pray that today before they leave here, they see myself or another pastor or email one of us this week to, to say they want to talk more about this. Father, I pray you'll keep that on their heart. Father, for the one that's sitting here today and, and, and their life is e everything but peace. There's so many things going on in their mind and in their heart. It's just all these different issues, Father. Help them to navigate to that place you desire them to be in their focus, in, in, the, in the nuances of their heart. And then, Father, I just pray you help us as a church family con to continue the harmony, the single-mindedness of doing what's important. And that's to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and disciple them, to help families understand how important it is that parents be the ones who lead the focus of their homes. Father, continue to give us revelation when it comes to understanding your word in such a way that we can make it so practical that people can say, you know, we just do God's word. It's that simple. Help us to surrender to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. You're dismissed.